0: Welcome to Chunky Theological Salsa, the new podcast that's really sweeping upper campus. Uh, mm-hmm. Scott Lasaya, your host, with the one, the only... Eben Drost. That's right. That's where you say your name. Good job, Evan. Thank you. We are on fire. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Evan, you had an idea for today's podcast that I thought was
1: maybe a little edgy, uh, having a, a Star Wars theme. What, what were you hoping we would do to, this morning? Well, we were trying to get... Baby Yoda is our guest host today. And, um, but there were some issues with the guild and some bounty hunters, (laughs) which really put our lives at danger. So we wisely (laughs) deferred to. And just like
0: that, we go straight to nerd level midnight. Instead, I thought we'd come out right out. You said earlier, uh, in our sort of trailer episode, Mm -hmm that we should code which uh, level of spiciness each of these podcasts are. And I was thinking maybe we just go straight to habanero because I was thinking, Hey, let's talk about like race, diversity, justice, faith, how all that interplays with each other. What do you think?
1: Let's do it. Um, and like I said in the trailer, you know, when we have these kind of spicy salsa episodes, I'll make sure I have a glass of milk nearby.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic.
1: Also good to apply
0: um, if you ever cut your finger off, you can put your finger in a bowl of milk as you
1: transport yourself to the hospital. Oh, should have done that last time.
0: <laughs> well, as we talk about race and faith and diversity, and you know, this is a conversation obviously that the broader church is having. And I think it's really good. It's, it's a corrective conversation, even in the evangelical movement that I think is really an important corrective and like any conversation, you know, the pendulum can swing wildly and all sorts of things. I tell you, when I was interviewing for this role at Westmont several years ago, it was really obvious to me that the campus was sort of pregnant with this conversation. Um, like mm-hmm. as the interview process went on, I realized, oh, wow, this topic that I thought I was ready for because of my own background and experience uh, I actually need to learn a lot about. And I started diving in deep because this place was pregnant with this um, emerging conversation on how faith and race and equity and justice all express themselves, even right here at a private Christian college.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What you talked about a little bit about your life experience and background. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Well, I don't know if you know this, uh, but I am Brown.
0: And uh, that wow. because that happens because I'm Latino. Not just the fact that I tan well, but both are true.
1: Wow. Um,
0: and but you know I I I uh, I've always worked with young people from um, uh, Latino backgrounds. My first uh, gig with Young Life, I spent a lot of time with Native Americans down in San Diego. I uh, ended up speaking at uh, Young Life's Woodleaf Camp, which is the most multi-ethnic. Christian camp in the world, and by far, and number two is some other young life camp somewhere else. So I thought, I thought that by being immersed in all that, that I was sort of up to speed. But I actually had to end up reading a bunch on systemic issues to kind of wrap my head around the conversation that was going on uh, in academia and in the church, uh, you know, on a broader level. Now, uh, you've you've been around this conversation quite a bit because even though you're a tall, good-looking white guy, you went to Fuller Seminary and were on the worship team there. uh, And you kind of had your own deep dive into education and having your own thoughts shaped on these issues. What was that like for you?
1: Yeah. um, So, my seminary experience was pretty formative. I mean, I went to Fuller because of initial interest I had in kind of a holistic gospel that had something to say about what the gospel meant for our bodies. And, you know, kind of my post-college journey was doing a lot of learning about um, uh, healing and God's heart for that, and mm. um some deep dives into that, and we can cover that in another episode. But I came away with this sense that the gospel uh, was a holistic message of God's love for the world, and that... Includes you know the life beyond this life and that's a of course vitally important and I think it also includes what the gospel means for bodies and things like you know physical life in this world today and so I knew Fuller was a place where I could go to learn more about that. What I didn't know was um, just how formative it would be in that direction and so I I went to Fuller Seminary and I started studies on campus there because I got a job as a worship team apprentice person. So there was a little group of us, and it was our job to plan liturgy and songs for weekly chapel. And my experience of Fuller was a lot what, um, of what David Bailey would call a space of displacement. Now, I, by no means was I a minority at Fuller as a whole, as a white male, but on the worship team I was serving, I was serving under the leadership of a wo- woman of color and there were people of color who were really um, formative and guiding our, you know, decision making. And um, so I kind of sat under that leadership for two years and soaked a lot in and got stretched a lot. Um, it's not that I've learned everything I have to learn, but I got this space of displacement where at least on that team, I was no longer the, you know, the the majority, the... The power voice at the table, so to speak. I was the learner and really illustrative mm-hmm. of that was the first chapel that I was assigned to plan music for. Um, it was, you know, the beginning of the fall quarter, 2016. And, um, so I had this thing all planned and we were jive in with it and, you know, we had a great rehearsal. Um, but the weekend, so this was going to be a chapel on a Wednesday and that weekend, um, J.R. Thomas, an African American man, uh, died in a police involved incident and it was really sketchy and it's, it's not good. And it's not the first problem the Pasadena police department has had with this. And that was right down the street from the seminary. So, and it was hitting a lot of us hard, but especially, you know, some of my new black friends and I'm on this worship team with people who, um, are really, <clears throat> kind of some of them have gone on to be pretty leading voices in this conversation, like Andre Henry and stuff. So, um, I get the call from Julie that we've got to pivot entirely. So everything that I've planned, almost everything that I've planned, we've got to re redo it because we as a community had this trauma it just happened, you know, down the street. And so it turned into this, um, this really deep service of lament and like a kind of like Pentecostal lament service. And, um, that was mm. my intro to what my life was going to be like at Fuller. And I'm forever grateful for the stuff I learned and experiences I had. You've certainly brought all that. Yeah. You've brought that all
0: here, which has been such a timely gift to, uh, this community As you've brought, I mean, you're, not only an amazing musician, as demonstrated in the theme song for Chunky think. Theological Salsa, uh, but, but perhaps you have even finer moments musically. But but you've also brought all this awareness, sensitivity, uh, wisdom to the conversation. I have so appreciated that. I love Fuller uh, for a lot of reasons. One of which, one of the draws for me was how. Uh, multi-ethnic, it is, and I that only got more and more deepened in my appreciation in my time there. Um, I can think of one day uh, I was doing my coursework there, and it's uh, day one of a class that I'm taking from NT Wright. And by this time in my coursework for my doctorate, I know that where you sit on day one is very important because creatures of habit tend to sit where they sit, and I want to get a good seat, so I get there early and I set up, and all of a sudden, this older Latino gentleman. Slides in, uh, next to me and he kind of shushes me down or swats me down with his hand, like, you know, slide down gestures. I'm like, okay, you know, I had a quiet time this morning. I can be like Jesus. So I'll slide down one seat. Well, that happens over and over and over with him until I am literally against the wall. And now my attitude is not, uh, kumbaya. I'm like, what in the heck is going on? I get all the way against the wall and I look up at him and he's waving me aside. And he's like, he wanted to get to the thermostat. He was the janitor. And what I love about that story and what it tells me about Fuller is that that could have just as easily been some like, you know, mega pastor from Venezuela or whatever else. And in fact, he probably is uh, a very influential pastor somewhere on Pasadena. Um, But (laughs) I, but I thought he's the janitor and that's just the kind of place that Fuller is like, you just have, I mean, I love even all the publications right? English, Korean Mm -hmm. and Spanish. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had some of those experiences, too, where you realize somebody you're in class with is like, oh, they're like a big deal in my buddy Pete was like a big deal in Thailand. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. I took one class. uh, In fact, this one was with um, Dallas Willard. And one of the women in the class with us was from China. And I guess she's like the worship music writer in China. Like she's a big deal. Yeah, that's pretty fun. But, uh, well, as, as you talk about, as we talk about these kind of issues, I'm aware I've had my own journey, even since coming to back to campus of my own racial identity. Um, you know, I'm Latino. My dad was Mexican. My grandparents, Mexican immigrants, but my mom is white and my folks split when I was about four and a half or five. And so I largely left the Latino family roots. Um, and grew up in mostly white settings. And so I've had my own journey here. And and what I'm recognizing even in students that I see is that part of that journey going through racial identity, there's different emotions and sort of phases to that. And some of it is anger. And um, then some of it uh, can move on to other productive things, including even solidarity, where you start to say, you know, I'm just going to join into the sufferings and the joys of other people that are having different experiences than me. Um, but it's been a kind of a wild ride. Yeah, and
1: you mentioned like, yeah, that there were some books that you were reading that were kind of helping you kind of process some of this stuff along the way. And maybe you could mention a few authors or um, books that kind of helped you process. Yeah, I. I just tend to nerd out when I want to learn
0: something and I go and read a bunch on it. So when I got into beekeeping, I was reading like beekeeping manuals from UC Davis. But things that have helped me in this conversation, um, actually, before I got to Westmont, I read a book called No Boundaries by Tom Diaz. And it's the history of transnational Latino gangs and American law enforcement. And it actually gave me a bunch of insight into California history with Latinos that I'd never known before. And that Book made me mad. Like I realized that there were a bunch of Mexican Americans or Mexicans that were lynched in Southern California. In fact, at a higher rate per capita than anywhere in the South. And, um, and that, that opened my mind. And then I read Divided by Faith, which is a longitudinal study by Emerson and Smith that was really helpful at setting the stage systemically, like what's mm-hmm. going on. And then I'm really grateful for. Like I've known who John Perkins is for a long time, met him a long time ago, but his last book, uh, he's calling it his last book. All the guy, the guy's prolific is called one blood. And I so appreciated how hopeful he was. And he maybe more clearly than anybody else I've read has couched the conversation and kept it in terms of faith and a redemptive trajectory and hope. And that was really encouraging. You know, a bunch of us faculty read um, Color of Compromise by uh, Tisby, Jamar Tisby, and that was hard because um, it just exposes a bunch of church history that where you realize the church has not always gotten it right, and sometimes there were moments where it didn't have to keep going, racism, to the extent that it did, had the church made a more bold or courageous decision. That was hard to swallow. Now at the same time, I want to say the church has not all the way uh, always gotten it wrong either, and we need to remember that that uh, we're a complicated, messed up people in process of becoming redeemed. Um, I was really grateful to read Ra's book, Prophetic Lament. I feel like just far enough into the reading, it gave me a language of what what do you do with lament and uh, and that sort of thing and. And how does that play a role in processing so much of this and And there have been others um David Bailey's become a friend, and his video stuff has been very helpful. We've had him on campus multiple times. uh Brian Laritz is a very helpful a thinker and writer as well. so yeah, it's just been a process I'm not done i I've just started the heart of racial justice by Brenda Salter McNeil, and she again is another person who I think writes about this and talks about this in a way that keeps Christ and a bigger biblical redemptive story in the terms of the conversation. Because I think sometimes we make it either or, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, that's, that's some good reading. I'm going to have to borrow some of those from you at some point. One thing that's been on my mind since you said something about, you know, your parents split when you were like four and a half and you grew up more in the white spaces. Were there, let's see, has there been anything you've learned along the way that's been like, oh, that's kind of like, I'm like this because I'm Latino, you know, and I didn't really realize it before. Hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, I've spent some summers living down in Mexico, and for lack of a better verbiage, I just, there's a homeness about being immersed in that culture that I don't feel anywhere else. And I think it's in the communal taking care of each other. You know, when I was running down into town to go get something, it's just by nature, you're asking your neighbors if they need anything, do they need to go anywhere or whatever else But just a way of looking out for each other. Um, that. And I, I don't know. I don't know if that's only, it's not certainly only a Latino thing, but I, there's just a hominess about being in Mexico and um, I love cooking Mexican food. My kids got me a tortilla press a couple of years ago and it's one of my favorite toys. Um, my goal this year is to learn how to make a great Ooh. mole. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of discovering some, some of the fun parts there and, and I, you know, I like to work really hard in my yard and be resourceful. And uh, when I was down in Mexico one summer helping a pastor build his house, I was just going to school on how resourceful Santiago was if he didn't have the right tool or whatever else. And I kind of always tease my boys that that's just good Mexican ingenuity. We're going to make something nice. work somehow.
1: That is awesome. I Yeah, I what you said <laughs> just there um, reminds me of a conversation I've had with One of our students at Westmont who, Mexican-American, went to Mexico for a semester for the abroad, um, came back and just it it opened his eyes to some things like, oh, that's that felt like home. And that explains some things about me. And I just thought it was really interesting. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, what do we want to talk about next?
0: Well, I'm thinking as we, like you and I are having a very nice conversation. My my pulse isn't raised. I'm not being offended. You're not being offended. But obviously when people have this conversation about race, how big of a deal is it in our understanding the universe, ourselves, other people, whatever else, it gets really interesting in the context, particularly of the Christian family where we would say that our greatest identifier is that we are followers of Christ. And yet there are these realities of race. Like instead of saying, you know, well, I don't see race. I don't see color. I'm colorblind. We've kind of learned now that as sweet as that sentiment perhaps is meant to be, it's actually not very helpful um, because it would say that I don't see part of who you are that it's okay that part of your ethnicity is part of who you are, that that's actually God's creative design, right? So there's some language and terms in this that can be almost conversation stoppers for some people, or they can be helpful in framing the conversation. So I kind of wanted to get your take uh, and maybe we could talk about some of these, you know, terms. So one of them is simply whiteness or white, like, What does it mean to be white? I I don't think I remember ever hearing the word whiteness uh, before I came to work at the college. Uh, How do you interact with that word? Because you're white. Half of me is white. How how do you take that word? How do you you think about um, that?
1: So we'll start with whiteness. Um, And obviously, whiteness in the most common sense just refers to the quality of something Mm -hmm. being white, like Paint or snow or clouds or something. Marshmallows. Marshmallows. And, um, so of course there's nothing negative about that. Uh, but then when we get into, you know, conversations about the way that word has been used, um, in a racialized sense. Um, so there's another way of using the word whiteness that, um, I would say it seeks to make sense of history and name the forces that have put people who look like me at the top of the social hierarchy. So, to really understand the way a mm-hmm. lot of people are using the word whiteness, uh, we have to know history. So, I mean, I like to start and remind people that the idea of race itself, like you said, it's really real. Like, we shouldn't be colorblind. Race has social effects. and um, But, you know, an ethnicity is biblical, but the idea of like a white race and a black race is not. That's a social construct. That's like an invented concept. And that was Mm -hmm. a concept that was invented to do things like, um, justify slavery or justify taking land. And so people threw in a lot of pseudoscience and twisted biblical interpretation, um, and came up with the idea that there's like a white race and a black race. So whiteness is often used kind of in this conversation. Um, and the idea, uh, yeah, and the idea of whiteness, um, so in the context of race, this idea of whiteness is, is inevitably connected to a history of oppression and exploitation, um, which is just a historical fact. And, and it still continues today in the way that non-white people are, um, treated differently by law enforcement or the way that white features and hair are normalized as the standard of beauty or, Like, white people are trusted more by landlords or by people, you know, making curriculums or whatever. Um, so, that's kind of, like, the the negative sense of whiteness, which was invented, you know. At some point, people said, like, oh, you know, you're from France, okay, you can count as white. You're from England, you can count as white. You're from Greece, uh, well, yeah, we'll count you as white, you know. And that had huge social effects. Um... But the good news for people like me is that, uh, white skinned people do not have to buy into this, um, whiteness thing. So this is like the redemptive trajectory here. Mm -hmm. Um, we can decide that we're not going to believe that white is normal and brown or black isn't normal. Um, or that white culture or, you know, theology or thought is always the gold standard and, so, in Chapel earlier this year, we had Dr. Reggie Williams speak, and he talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was, you know, white. He's German. Um, and he was ultimately mm-hmm. executed by the Nazis. Um, basically, if you trace the history, it's because he rejected whiteness. He rejected the heretical idea of there being a white race that was superior to others, um, which was what the whole Nazi thing was about. Um, so that's just kind of like, right. Yeah. The Aryan race. So I know I'm going on a little bit, but I think like,
0: no, but that's good. I mean, and that's, it exposes like that we have to have a, a um, it helps to have a glossary of terms because I can say whiteness and you can hear white. And if you're white, then you feel like I'm condemning you and that by the color of, by the nature of the color of your skin, I think you're evil and that's where it's actually helpful to have terms and understand what we mean by something. I mean, I think of like MLK Jr. and how he always had a way of saying we're going to love our white brothers and sisters into justice, you know, that he he never vilified the person but he said very hard things about their attitude of what the the whiteness uh this mentality uh hmm. was doing to them.
1: Yeah, I I think that's spot on. And yeah, so just keeping that distinction between whiteness and white people is really important because whiteness is like, you know, making white people the the center or the norm of everything. Whereas white skin is neutral, you know, or neutral in the sense of, you know, right, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, neutral is very
0: important. If you ever owned a Volkswagen. Because you have to keep it in neutral while someone is pushing you so you can jumpstart it. I've owned seven Volkswagens, and oh, this is yeah, important well, to know.
1: I'll uh, yeah. go out and buy a Volkswagen right now. I'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> Farvignougan. Okay,
0: the second term is not Farvign- Nugan but wh- what about white privilege then? So uh, you're hearing a lot of this term being used. Uh, What's your take on what white privilege is? Sounds pretty close to white.
1: White privilege. Let me go back. Let me rewind one second. The whole thing about white being neutral. I just realized that could sound wrong. Um, What I meant was there's nothing wrong with having white skin. We'll just leave it at that. Um, Back to white privilege. Um, Okay. So, yeah, to my mind, white privilege is... It doesn't mean that white people automatically have had easier lives than non-white people, but it means that there are certain things and certain like, you know, significant things that people who look like me don't generally have to worry about or think about in this society, um, because of our skin color. And so we, we rarely have to think about, I rarely have to think about being the only white person in the classroom. And I've had that experience before and it was great, but, um, it can be really tough in certain situations if you know you're the only person that looks like you in a room um or you know you don't have to worry about seeing yourself represented in movies or we can feel safer while jogging in public don't have to think twice about police profiling right us etc um so what i tell people is it would be pretty naive to think that there's no such thing as white privilege and that it isn't like a A big deal. I also tell people, um, we need to remain careful, uh, to not flatten out kind of all the factors that inevitably complicate the discussion. Um, so sometimes it kind of ends up being counterproductive to the cause of justice when people talk about white privilege without, you know, any nuance at all. And, and we need some of that nuance to take into account, you know, there's the, the countless advantages and disadvantages people can have from all sorts of things you know from ability and disability to you know how much their parents loved them growing up etc so like a story i sometimes think of and i won't go on too long but um, when i first became a christian or started following christ seriously i was really excited about this really true thing um at the same time i was sometimes sort of um, rough around the edges in explaining this to my friends who all of a sudden, like, oh, Evan is really into this Jesus thing now. And so, I wasn't always sure I was quite ready to share that new knowledge in a super appropriate way because I was um really new to the Bible still. Uh So... Uh, I think in a similar way, I just caution people, when you learn about white privilege, um, make sure you gain some life experience and wisdom to deploy that concept in a a helpful way. But of course, you know, Uh, you go. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that's uh, it's a powerful uh,
0: idea or word and it can be helpful and it's also powerful and it could, you know, used improperly could again, stop conversation or alienate. Right
1: um yeah and and at the same time it's like the burden shouldn't have to be on you know young people to carry this conversation so but sometimes like if nobody else is saying anything you know we can't blame people for speaking up so i want to be sensitive in the way i say that i just i just think it's a a caution that's worth articulating
0: yeah and i think that Like some, some of the resistance I hear to that phrase, and I understand it, is that someone can say, look, I'm white, but I've grown up poor. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic. Uh, I've worked really hard to get to where I am in life and, you know, that sort of thing. And I've, and, and which is all true. And so I think it's important to say white privilege doesn't mean that because you're white, you've had it easy. But I think it's maybe helpful to say, White privilege would say that if you're not white, there is a historic, uh, tangible disadvantage that other people have to, in addition to whatever else they're facing, alcoholic parents or, you know, whatever other misfortune, they're also having to go uphill and work harder just to get to the same place. And that's been helpful for me to think of, like, that the field has been slanted against people. And this has all sorts of ramifications as far as, you know, redlining and people not getting loans for housing and being pushed into slums or uh, ways that our prison system works or whatever else. That doesn't mean that if you're white, you've got it easy. And I think that's just yeah. important to say. So I said it. Nice. I thought it was important to say. So I said it. How about that? Okay. So and here's another one. Here's a punch in the face. Uh, the culminating term, I think, uh, white supremacy. Like when I hear this term, I think immediately of shaved skinhead, you know, neo-Nazis, uh, white supremacy. And it seems so radical uh, that it doesn't belong in the conversation because actually I've never seen a neo-Nazi or someone with a swastika live in person where I live. Um, and and yet there might be a helpful way that this word... Uh, gives us some language about an attitude or a belief system, right? Uh, it, there's times where I think it's a conversation stopper and other times where maybe it has a prophetic, mm. powerful punch to kind of shake people awake to what's really going on. What, what do yeah, you think Yeah, I like about what you thing? said
1: about, you know, it shakes us up prophetically because it, at first we're like, Oh, you know, I'm not a skinhead or I'm not a, you know, I'm not marching in that parade in the blues brothers movie or whatever, but um, it's, to me, I've just learned to think of it more as, um, white supremacy is anything happening in any situation where white people are considered even a tiny bit more trustworthy or a tiny bit less inclined to criminal activity or whatever, you know, so it's, it's just anything that Mm -hmm. puts white people on top. And I think it's just a, a silly bar to say that racism is if you're in the kkk like well there's a lot of s- levels right lower than that that are still affecting people and can still be classified as white supremacy um but i like what you said yeah it's it it does shake you up when you hear it like that but when you kind of take a calm approach and think well I guess anything that makes me think I'm even a tiny bit more trustworthy—that's white supremacy. Hmm. Yeah, I heard uh, the
0: phrase this winter during a sermon. Um, African American preacher was just bringing it, and he said, "I don't condemn you for the color of your white skin. I'm condemning the thought and the belief about what that has told you about mm. who you are and who I am." It's like, oof. That's, yeah. that's powerful. Well, actually,
1: why don't you go ahead? Go ahead.
0: Okay. Um, I was going to say, you know, how you hear these terms, uh, lands on your own openness to staying in a conversation. Um, I get mistaken for being all sorts of things. Uh, one time when I was in Missouri at a theme park, I had a guy ask me, what are you? <laughs> that, well, I'm yeah, about to beat you up. Um, and, uh, you know, if I'm in Hawaii, they think I'm Hawaiian. If I'm in uh, Nablus, Palestine, they think I'm Palestinian. And when I'm in Mexico, they know I'm Mexican. Um, but I get called white passing here. I never even heard that term before. I don't like it. But um, what what about you? Like, as you engage in these conversations,
1: do you have some tips about how you think about navigating this conversation well you know as a white guy and i'm sure we'll have other conversations with you later and other guests but you know for me to not get in like a sort of defensive position i think it's helpful to just be really clear that i'm known and loved by god and that you know god's made me Mm -hmm. and and god's redeemed me and all that stuff I think that when I think about how to respond in light, when you become awakened to just the deep injustices and inequities and brokenness of the world, whether it's race or ecological or, you know, coronavirus or whatever, I think it always needs to be, it's helpful for me to always filter it through a sense of calling. So, like, just really, you know, doing business with God and figuring out, like, what are you calling me to do in this? because none of us are going to be omni-competent to just, you know, know everything about everything. <laughs> so, um and then I try to in this conversation I try to avoid alarmism on the one hand, and I'm taking these ideas from Esau Macaulay, who's a a Black New Testament prof at Wheaton mm. and uh you know, alarmism is sometimes a little bit more common in conservative circles where you hear something and you about race and you react really defensively about it. Uh, so watch out for alarmism, like take time to listen. And then on the other hand, uh, Macaulay mm-hmm. talked about theological paternalism, which might be, he said more common in some of his progressive friends, which is the unwillingness to engage critically with ideas coming from in what he's talking about is black theologians, but could be applied more broadly. So, I mean, I think, so for me, it's yeah, like, listen, 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 but also engage and don't be paralyzed and have no ability to critique. And I think you've said something that really cracks me up. You know, you're like, I don't even agree with everything I say. Why should I agree with, you know, everything everyone else says. so <laughs>
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and I I feel like in life, when I'm getting critique or I'm, when I'm hearing a hard message, the worst thing I do is be defensive. The best thing I can do is to ask, just to pause, yeah. and say, "What if they're right? Like, what if they're right?" And I, there's a lot of good fruit that comes from that, and it, it even allows grace to kind of grow in the middle of those conversations. I I really like David Bailey's. Um, approach to these conversations where every time, um, he'll say, okay, here are the ground rules and the ground rules all are there. We are in a grace space where we're, someone's going to say something offensive, maybe even racist, but we're in a gray space to have this conversation. Uh, because if we're so afraid of making an error, we won't have a real conversation. It's like the woke police are going to come in and haul you away. And instead, like we're in a gray space to say, we are in a learning process um, to understand, I think particularly as Christians, how to have this conversation with Hmm. Jesus right in the middle of it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and obviously I don't hear you saying that we're like, we don't want to like protect people from hearing like bad things, but the, yeah, that idea of what did he say? You know, there's no experts here. Um, yeah, yeah. And I do think,
0: you know, we we need to get better at saying hard things to people that we love. Um, that, that is what it means to sharpen one another. And you see that evidence all throughout the scriptures. I mean, Paul and, you know, the church in Antioch and Jerusalem, they had sharp words for each other as they sharpened one another to understand how to include the Gentiles and what that meant for the church. And, you know, it wasn't all kumbaya, but it was productive. Yeah. It was faithful.
1: Yeah, and another thing you're you're saying about that you know um like having grace and conversations one thing i i try to remind myself and this is another david bailey thing is try to read both sides of an issue as best you can and kind of you know sometimes let them argue in your head as you figure mm-hmm. out the best path forward but i found that if i'm not listening to even somebody who i might disagree with like 90 percent of what they have to say but they might be the only person mm-hmm. I know who's going to say the 10% that I need to know. Um, and mm, so I just good. try to surround myself with, you know, all sorts of takes on issues and stuff. And it's not that I end up agreeing with all of it or, you know, but yeah. And I think that's part of why we invite different kind of speakers to speak at college campuses and stuff like that. Like, academic and intellectual curiosity means like we need to listen to people who we don't always agree with everything they say. Right. We got to, we got to grow
0: in discernment, right? We bring all of our mind and all of our heart and our whole selves uh, to these conversations. And I, I just feel like, you know, in the church, we haven't always done it well, but sometimes we do. And I feel like actually we're uniquely positioned to do this conversation well, like, I mean, you just think of the, the church, the most global, multi-ethnic movement in the history of anything. We have something to say about this and actually an ability to do it well that I think is really good news to the world. You know, you you even see this in the genealogy of Jesus, right? You got all these, you got these four surprise women and they're ites, Hittite, Moabite, a Jerichoite, a Canaanite, even in the, in the genealogy of the Messiah you see the diversity and then early on in the church you see who was radically included in the church and even in in leadership of it it was no longer an ethnocentric religion um and i just feel like we have this deep in our dna that uh you know in the old testament in genesis we get this concept of echad of being one a man and a woman i'm sorry well echad i got to apologize to my microphone um But it's this oneness of many parts. And then you see Jesus in the, in the Lord's Prayer in John 17, this is the exact thing that he's praying for us is that we would be one. And Jesus himself is not saying that we would gloss over the hard things. It's not what he means by being one, but he is praying that we would be one. And I feel like we got to lean into that somehow. We have to have this appreciation and, and desire to actually participate with what he wants and um you know we've been talking about you know critical theory and, and critical race theory and that explains things in terms of power dynamics and it's a helpful lens i don't think it's the end all but i don't think it's nothing like i love this idea in education that all truth is god's truth meaning if it's true it's true and there are some true things out of critical race theory that help us understand this human problem we have. But I think without a biblical reference, we might just think it's because we have the wrong people in power when actually we understand we have a sin issue in all of human hearts. But we also have this story of liberation and, um, again, a trajectory of redemption and oneness and that we're moving into. I get excited about the kind of yeah. conversations we could have.
1: And I yeah, and I loved your preaching on John 17 this year and just really talking about how radical that idea of oneness is and um well, let me ask you a couple questions. Um kind of piggybacking off that last concept of, you know, what the Bible says, what do you think are some of the common errors Christians can make in dealing with questions of diversity and racial equity? Well, like I
0: said, I, uh, we're in a, the church is having a corrective conversation right now. Maybe it's always been ongoing, but it's certainly the volume is uh, is up right now. And I think in the, in our own evangelical tradition, and by the way, I still love the word because the four quadrilateral things that make an evangelical and evangelical, one of them is working for the good of the world for doing real justice. And I, I really believe that term. It's been hijacked a bit. So is the word Christian, but I still like it. But in our evangelical tradition and in the Christian tradition, sometimes we have only made Jesus, the kingdom, um, Christian story about heaven someday. And we've turned a blind eye to, uh, like you said, our bodies here and now. And I always think it's both and. It's now and not yet. It's both and. We're embodied people, and uh, the gospel is good news for every part of us. And I think that that's a good corrective going on. It's not just for spiritual someday later, but there are systemic things that, that the church is to work for the betterment of the city. We're supposed to be salt and light. And, and and this is where we get it right, right? Orphanages, Mm. when there was massive movement of, Fatherless children and people being rescued out of the sex trade and women's vote and slavery and hospitals and all sorts of, you know, clean water, all sorts of movements around the world when the church says the kingdom means goodness Mm. now as well. And, And I think, you know, in our American way, we were way too individualized. Uh, we read the Bible as a love letter between God and us alone in our closet, and we forget that we're part of a community. And then Jesus blows that community up by saying, and who's your neighbor? Yeah, everybody. So I think there's a lot of proper challenge going on in the conversation.
1: Mm-hmm. Take that one to heart. Take it to heart and take it to bed, because I think yeah. we need to wind um, this baby up. Well, let me close. What are you reading now that might be relevant, or most recently? Well,
0: yeah, I, I think this, The Heart of Racial Justice by Brenda Salter McNeil is really helpful to me. Um, and again, I'm enjoying her language and um, and the, the tone and the depth of her understanding of the biblical story. Oh, I'm nice. appreciating it.
1: Well, yeah, maybe we should wrap it up. But um, thank you so much. And I would remind... Oh, yeah. And we're wrapping it up while I'm rapping, <laughs> rapping with words. Yes, it's
0: rap. <laughs> You're a natural. You're a natural. You're a musician. Yeah. Well, later in this really series, I itself. can
1: share the raps I wrote about the city of Goleta about nine years ago. Um, Please, please. Maybe we can also hear
0: an outtake oh, I, of I your banged I banged yeah. my head. That would be lovely.
1: Walk through a door, above my head, stand up too fast, I bump my head, don't see the light, I bump my head, stowing my bags, I bump my head, taking a shower, I bump my head, go down some stairs, I bump my head, in the car, I bump my head, I'm losing my hairs, Above my head. You Bumped my head, yeah, it's a classic. I bump my head. Um... Um yeah, well I would just say we're gonna continue some of these conversations later and um you know there's so many ideas in here that we can fill out more and give more context to. But Scott, I really appreciate I mean I'm blown away by just the amount of books you've read in the past couple of years and just really value your heart for this conversation.
0: Well, thanks, brother. I appreciate how you teach me in this, uh, how to have the right spirit, uh, in this. It's been very helpful. And that's today's love fest. So until next time, eat something spicy, Mm -hmm. get some chips, get some guac, chunky theological salsa. Out. Out.